0: In this week's episode, Tali and Tony are joined by Sonja Vinovic, the current General Manager of Client Partnerships and Business Growth, as well as the Victorian Director for Settlement Services International. Sonia is an Executive Manager with over 20 years' experience and knowledge of the multicultural sector, migration and resettlement. She has a strong leadership record of strategic and stakeholder engagement skills and a proven track record in developing and maintaining effective partnerships with key stakeholders, including all tiers of governments, academia and civil society. In this week's episode, she highlights some of the misconceptions around the not-for-profit sector and the belief that frugality equates with morality. We also discussed some of the difficulties faced by the sector when it comes to attracting and retaining talent and the importance of aligning values with staff to build a workforce that is in it for the long haul. Our discussions ends with a thorough discussion around SSI and Ignite and some of the past and present projects of their teams.
1: Sonia, welcome to the podcast. Lovely to have you.
2: Thank you. It's lovely to be here with you.
1: Yes, yeah, so I was speaking with Tali earlier and this has been around about two years in the making now. I think we first started talking about you being a podcast guest with us uh, during COVID, I think.
2: I think it was actually the conversation went back then. Um, so it's great to be here with both of you this, this afternoon. Yes.
1: Yeah, so then, once again, thanks for doing this. We first met at, um, not too sure whether you remember Marie Donopoulos introduced us at the premier's ball, um, well, Pre certainly pre COVID, so it's mm-hmm. probably about six years ago or so now, where uh, we had a chat at the premiers' ball, and then we reconnected again, where both SSI Settlement Services International, the organisation you represent, and ourselves were sponsors uh, for the Nova Paris statue launch. So it was, and that was cancelled because of COVID, and then put back on. So it was, it was great to reconnect at that as well, where we see people who are doing and helping people doing really good uh, by society in general.
2: No, no, it was great and it was wonderful to actually be here and, and meet you back then and the great work that you've been doing in your proactiveness in relation to our First Nations um, communities as well as your interest in um, working with multicultural communities and the work that we do. Just, um It's always rewarding speaking to individuals and meeting individuals that have got a genuine interest and passion in um, social justice as well. So it's great and an honour to be a mate of yours, Tony.
1: Absolutely Sonia as, as Charlie knows we have both been put on notice because you and I could talk for 5 hours with, our, <laughs> uh, with each other without any problems so i mean it's uh, we agree on most things except the football teams that we support but otherwise we get over that pretty quickly so it's um now just just um just quickly just so we can uh, our listeners can get a bit of a gauge of you know, your background and, you know, your passion for what you've led to. So we both have a passion in respect to working with First Nations people. We both have a passion with working in a multicultural, uh, you know, society in general. Uh, and we both come from backgrounds, you know, of immigrants, as, you know, even Tali's family does as well in respect to Australia. But... Now I work in the for profit sector. you work in the not for profit sector um, you know so you guys obviously have far more impact uh, than what we do. We like to give and we like to help, but you know the impact of what you do and I think sometimes there's a bit of misconception on that. but I want to go back to your start. you know in what actually drew you because your whole career and, and, and an amazing career. Uh, to where, where you are today, but your whole career has been about helping and giving back to society, whether it be working at Anglicare or, you know, senior at Red Cross or, um, et cetera. So can we, can we talk about your career and where that passion started, you know, those, those years ago and, you know, where, to where you are today?
2: You know, great. Um, and as you've already alluded and stated, we could be talking about this for many, many, many hours. So I'll try to be concise. Um On reflection, I mean this question was posed to me in the past, and I must admit it took me a little while to actually realise why I entered into this industry and this field, having um, completed you know a major in sports psychology really, um, and wanting to go down that pathway. But I think um, where my career sort of the fork um, and the direction went towards working in the humanitarian sector, was that post uni, um there was conflict in um in the former Yugoslavia, where my parents are from. um and i I could see the um, the disharmony and also the um some of the rhetoric that was happening in in society around the conflict, and really seeing that felt like that some voices weren't heard. Um, and people weren't listening to all sides of the story and, and, and their experiences. So I think at that point in time, um, you know, it was a little bit opportunistic, but it was also, um, the timing. Uh, I was applying for a role at the Institute of Sport, um, which was a, a small, Outfit in Victoria, um, as well as applying for a job with Serbian Welfare Association and, um, the ethno specific organization acted a bit quicker in the whole recruitment process. Um, so I secured that role, um, only to be invited to an interview at the Institute of sport but I felt well given that I've already committed to um, the role at the ethno-specific organization that I needed to sort of commit to that and and see my time there and deliver on on the work that um, I sort of put myself out there to deliver and at that point in time and again on reflection I, I do see that that the voices of vulnerable individuals at that Um, was something that I was really strong about and wanting to ensure that I could support individuals whilst they were at that particular point in time to raise their voice and to be able to provide some solutions because I do think that humans have got some, you know, all of us have challenges um, but we, and learning from those experiences, but we could all make a difference if we actually just had a helping hand at a point in time where people were feeling a bit vulnerable or unfamiliar with certain circumstances or situations, didn't have the connections, didn't have the right pathways or understanding of the systems of where to access that information. So I do think it was that, but also when I dig a bit deeper, I think when I, um, hearing the stories from my parents and their migration pathway and their strong advocacy to our First Nations people, um, really resonated for me as well. Um, and ensuring that we, um, respect our First Nations people and learn from them as well as, um, build the bridges between new communities. And that was something that, you know, I really wanted to do and, and showcase and, you know, a little bit, you know, as much as I could help and bridge those gaps, um, was something that I was really passionate about.
1: And has, you know, over the last, what, 20 plus years, 20 odd years now, 20 plus years has now been a very successful career in respect to the impact that you've made personally through all the work that you've actually done. Can I ask you a question, though, Sonia? and this is a question without notice, but mm-hmm. you mentioned um you know when the war in the former Yugoslavia broke out, and the misinformation that was sort of going out there. do you think that is um magnified intensely nowadays due to social media, whereas back then it was just the Herald Sun might report something. Yeah. The Guardian might report something else. Um, do you think you know where the sort of sides were? What you read in the newspaper and you saw uh, some something on the news. Do you think that has magnified or intensified um, a lot over, say, the last decade because of social media?
2: Oh, absolutely. And I think there's different mechanisms and means of um, mediums of media that people can actually access. And so you can actually hear more um, on the ground what's what's actually happening and what the impacts are on the ground, um, which you know it has its positive and negative I think as well because sometimes it's you know it's, it's relentless and it's constant. Um, the accessibility is um, so available, so it can have uh, an impact on individuals' health um, in relation to that just that accessibility and always being available to you. Uh, that you can't sort of switch it off, which sometimes can have, as I said, have a negative impact on people's, um, mental health. So it's being able to, being able and aware to, of those mechanisms of when it's becoming too much and how to put some, Safety mechanisms in place to switch off um, just for your own safety, and do other mindfulness activities, or and just really detaching yourself from the uh, you know the accessibility and the availability of that um, social media and the media.
1: Unfortunately, though, it is um, the social media nowadays. The way it's designed is to actually have people, young people in particular, you know, addicted. Uh, to the social media and just always, always on it. And of course, always being fed a view that they may strongly believe in or strongly disagree in to actually get them angry as well. So that's the shame of it. Can I ask mm-hmm. then from, and we'll, we will go into, uh, Settlement Services International, SSI, but from, from that level, do you find the people who, a lot of the people that you, SSI, have looked after, you know, uh, you've settled a lot of refugees from war-thorn countries from all around the world. Do you find social media can sometimes um, exasperate, I suppose, away or bring on their, you know, PTSD stuff that they have been and if they have got that constant feed of social media, whereas maybe in the past when our parents first came over here, they mm-hmm. didn't have that constant bombardment, you know, yeah. of information or misinformation uh in a lot of ways too sometimes the same story can be actually told in two completely different ways do you find that that's actually been detrimental to their own mental health in trying to you know settle in a brand new country where english isn't necessarily their first language and grow from there as well
2: i absolutely it can um and the trauma um is is has been noted um and presented by um contact you know colleagues in in our organization as well that have gone through uh war and trauma and resettled within australia and are working and successful but the constant um turmoil i think globally has definitely has an impact on individuals health and well-being so it's being mindful of that in sort of in the work context as well as in in the local community is really critical and just to be kind to each other um and offer Offer some support and um, access to whether it's formal and, and or informal, um, you know, psychological support, uh, is something that we do quite actively and proactively, particularly with our, with our staff, but even on a personal level with my colleagues, um, you know, just reaching out and seeing how they, how they're traveling, understanding that some people have got, you know, family in different, um, you know, war-torn situ- or in war zones. So it's just being uh, being there as some being there for them to be able to talk to talk to someone that's not going to be judged, um, and to be able to express their concerns, but also ensuring that we've got somewhere we can refer them onto if they need more in-depth or um, intensive professional support. Sonny,
1: can I ask then the question uh, SSI? Uh, Now, from a macro level, uh, when I first met you, you had started, uh, you were the state manager of Victoria. You had started SSI in Victoria. I think you started with just a couple of employees. Um, when I first met you at the Nova Paris, uh, launch, I think you had about 30 at that stage. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were in Collingwood and now you've moved to Carlton and grown substantially and even SSI from its, Humble beginnings. I think it, you're the general manager there now as well as the state manager. But do you have, um, I think you have up to a thousand of people now working, uh, mm. with SSI. So as a not-for-profit, you've grown substantially over the years, even since, you know, I first got back in contact with you about four years ago. So what has, um, if you can give us a bit of an overlay of SSI on a macro level, where it first started and its reasoning mm-hmm. behind. I mean, SSI does stand for Settlement Services International, but it's so much broader uh, than that now. So can you give a bit of a timeline of SSI and where you are today?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, yes, you've got your facts right. Um, so we are a not-for-profit. And, you know, historically you did rely a lot on goodwill and trusted funders. But we really need, and what I think where we've been quite successful is that we've demonstrated the impact and practical, and the impact has been practical and quantifiable. Um, And as a result, even our organisation has moved from strategic planning to being an impact business. Um, and that's basically underpinned by the, our impact strategy. So organisationally, we're a human services based organisation, not for profit, and we really are there to serve our communities. Our role, what we see our role is really to um, work with individuals to meet meet their full potential. And whatever, I mean, and that full potential is defined in different different ways with different people. So we do. We have um, multiple program areas. So, for example, in the last financial year, we supported 56,000 plus people. Um, we have uh, 59 different pro- uh, program streams that we deliver services to, uh, and so they vary from working with uh, people that have come newly arrived. Um, through the Refugee Humanitarian Program, to working with asylum seekers that are onshore. We provide employment um, services to a a large cohort of individuals. Uh, We have disability support programs, children and family services, um, entrepreneurship. We've got a small research advocacy arm as well and really work um, towards impact and partnerships. So we've got a real strong uh ethos around ensuring that we partner and partner with individuals and organisations that are like-minded, um, in order to meet, um, you know, the most, uh, meet the impact of our clients and achieve what our clients and our communities are needing to achieve to be successful within the environment within Australia. So the organisation, as you've mentioned, has grown, um, over a number of years. So from We started in 2000 and then really in 2011 we secured a a statewide contract in New South Wales and then in 2018, for example, we uh, extended the services out into Victoria and merged with an organisation in Queensland. So at the moment we have got an East Coast footprint. We've got over a 1,000 staff um, and our operations. We've got some um, national uh, programs as well as we have an international uh, small international footprint where we provide partnership support to Asia, uh, a whole lot of organisations in within the Asia-Pacific um, as well as in um, Colombia and partner with the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. So the journey for me, I started in 2018, and you're right, there was myself, and then we had a national uh, contract that we delivered in Victoria we started in a small office in in, Cob- uh, in Collingwood um, and the real role there was to see what are the gaps, what are the opportunities, what role could our organisation play within the Victorian context and um, understanding that the Victorian multicultural con- um, organisations are quite um, embedded in community, have been around for a long time and have got some really good programs. But there were some gaps that we identified, and they were namely around employment, around entrepreneurship and children and family services. So my role there was really to see how do we partner, how do we influence um, government predominantly um, to fund um, specific programs and projects within those areas, um, which we were successful in doing uh and that was a great great achievement um and I, I did say to my ceo well you know my job's done um and i can i can move on but um i ended up getting a broader portfolio so it's keeping me busy um busier now uh, so i've got the state director role but also as you mentioned the general manager of clients partnerships and business growth and that's for the whole of the organization and the whole of the business so yeah so that's the journey. Um, we have over a thousand staff um, uh, within the organisation. We are extremely culturally diverse, so our staff um, are represent over 70, uh, 70% of our staff identify as um, coming from a culturally and linguistically diverse community. Um, Some of our business units, for example, our Settlement and Newcomers Business Unit, 85% of our staff within that business unit are of refugee background themselves. So they've got the lived experience that they can actually share with us um, in order for us, and we co-design programs to meet the needs of our communities.
3: Incredible, Sonia. It's a really huge scope. Um, Tonya and I were discussing before we caught up this morning, just about the differences in um, the standards that we hold not-for-profits to versus for-profit companies. I think ISS is quite unique in the the scale that it has reached. And we tend to see a lot of charities and not-for-profits really struggle to reach that scale. And I think a lot of it is driven by the fact that they're not allowed to act as entrepreneurial businesses um, and drive growth. how have you seen that reflected within the work that you've done, and have you faced those barriers, and Can you tell us a bit more about some stories I guess around that?
2: Yeah, no, totally, absolutely, and it's interesting you know um we have this debate internally and also with government, you know you're too you're too commercial, you're not commercial enough, so you're you are constantly straddling those those um those challenges. Um, you know, as an organisation, we're a purpose-driven business. That's how we see ourselves. We see us ourselves as our organisation, or as a as a social business that actually needs has an intention around social purpose for its beneficiaries. So that's people and society and planet. Um, we we see that there is a need to have a whole of society approach. So there's a real critical role for NGOs. For government, for corporates as well, um, and community. So we really do try to build those bridges together. Um, a good example of it, a uh, uh, work that we did more recently, is called um, the Billion Dollar Benefit, and it's a roadmap to unleashing the economic potential of refugees and migrants. And it was an area where we had 50 experts coming together from um, different sectors in industries. As well as government and looking at breaking down the barriers and finding solutions, um, to some of the critical fact, you know, critical, bar- um, challenges that we all face within the Australian context. Um, and that's where we do, we do try to change and drive some, um, some shifts and changes where we get government, business, lived experience, sector, individuals coming together and really Identifying what the issue is and how do we work together and what role each of us take, um, to move forward the agenda or influence some of those, those changes. And the billion dollar benefit is a really beautiful, I think, um, product that we were able to drive from earlier this year. And we're just getting a lot of, um, a lot, a lot of impact and a lot of support from all those different Different people in the, in the, um, community in different roles and each, each one taking responsibility, um, and ownership of driving the agenda and influencing and informing this change. Um, but it is, it is a challenge. You know, as I said mm-hmm. at the start, you know, you're too corporate. You're not corporate enough. You should be more, in, you know, you should be more this way. You should be more, and, it, you know, managing all of those, um, elements is quite tricky. Um, but you know we we do it in you know in consultation in partnership um, with our with our staff with our communities with our funders with our stakeholders and really seeing that we all have a role to play to influence and make a better society. At the end of the day, that's what we want. We want a harmonious, mm. thriving society that everyone feels um, welcomed and can participate and can see themselves in that role. But it can be tricky. I mean, I don't want to undershadow that. It can be extremely tricky.
3: Yeah, there's definitely an extra burden that's placed on not-for-profits to justify their expenses that I don't think a for-profit company would be subject to. It's um, definitely different standards. um, And as well in terms of attracting talent and staff, how do you go about attracting staff to a workplace where there's so much more pressure around the paycheck that that staff member is receiving when someone with a that high skill set can be drawn towards something in the I guess the profit sector mm. <laughs> where they're going to be paid upwards of double that same salary it's it's really tough balance
2: oh absolutely. There's a couple of elements. I mean, you've got people, why people are driven to organisations or not-for-profits or organisations such as SSI is because they align with the mission and vision and purpose and the values. Um, so that's one thing. But then it's about how do you retain that talent, as you said, because they could be paid a lot more in the corporate world. But what we are hearing and seeing as well is that, you know, two-thirds of millennials now are taking, um, you know, a, Wanting to work for companies that have social and environmental commitments, um, and, and then making those decisions to work in, in those organizations. So from a recruitment perspective, we, we need, we're looking at as well what we do to attract, retain, um, and train our staff, um, and wanting to ensure that, you know, we are keeping the best talent, but also giving them opportunities for growth and development and, Promotion and diversity of um of uh, of skill sets as well, and you know um diversity of uh yeah roles and projects. So you know as an executive within our organisation, we take that quite seriously. So we're constantly looking at you know we look at our retention data, we look at why you know why people are opting to move on. Um, so we use that as a platform to like make some shifts and changes from a. Uh, recruitment perspective and a, a, a retention perspective as well but as leaders we all have a responsibility to provide some mentoring um training as i said opportunities for people to actually act up act across um in different roles so then that way you're actually keeping it motivating connected to the work and the and the mission and vision and the purpose so that's from a staffing perspective it is hard from um again from a we all take accountability and accountability is one one of our key values um is critical for an organization um but it does become a challenge when um you know government does impose a lot of scrutiny which is fair enough because it's taxpayers money i understand that but sometimes you know all the quality assurance measures or um all systems that you need to be uh, accredited to and um you know, follow the admin you, that you need to follow and the scrutiny around reporting does take you away from that frontline client engagement. So, again, looking at, we're constantly looking at how do we streamline those administrative focus um, processes to ensure that our frontline staff have got uh, more outward focused and are working a lot more with community. And we partner with... um Experts in those areas because we're not experts as well, so we'll we'll bring in experts in those areas around modelling um, and you know looking at processes, systems, evaluations, and continuously look at how do we actually improve the way that we are um, serving our our people and our clients.
3: Yeah, yeah. Do you think that perhaps the word not for profit is not really um, appropriate, or it I guess mislead people into their expectations of what these sort of um, charities should be doing
2: oh well, yeah actually it's a it's a good point and I think some of the peaks such as acos uh, are look do look at that as well and look at the terminology terminology I think with a lot of or acronyms and ways of um those descriptions are looked upon uh um often with with sectors and individuals and, you know, we debate, you know, how do we define ourselves? Um, And I think it's a constant evolving, it's not static, it's a constant evolving discussion and debate that we need to continuously have and I think it's really important not to lose sight of that. Uh, But I think there is a real place for -for not-for-profit. Is it about an educational um, process that maybe we as we in the industry need to be taking forward a little bit more and, Um, you know, supporting and and educating, I suppose, our government and other industries and sectors around what this does mean because we are, we, I mean, we see ourselves as a a social business not-for-profit because we, but any of our, but we need to have smart ways of, operating and ensuring that we're financially sustainable so then we can reinvest into areas and programs that government are not funding as well Mm -hmm. and so as an organisation we self-fund a lot of initiatives and programs because government doesn't fund those and we see the gap and the opportunity to do that so um you know you need to have your really robust systems and account and accountabilities um but yeah and also then look at how do we how do we sort of Pilot things or test things, and then present those concepts and um, ideas to government as a solution. So that's what we yeah. try to do quite often as well. Where we see gaps in system, we try to fill those gaps, come up with um, concepts, test those concepts, and then go back to government or go back to funders or go to philanthropy and say, okay, this is a solution to uh, a critical problem within you know within the Australian context. Um, and we think that this will have some, um, you know, some benefits. So, you know, can you explore um, putting in some resourcing to enable us to have a fulsome um, program and project that can be formally evaluated as well? So there's m- multiple ways of us doing that, um, and we try to do that as best as we can. It's a
3: huge beast. That you're tackling realistically um sorry you go tony
2: no she's I
1: was, I was, I was just gonna <clears throat> lead on from that son you, you've the impact that uh, ssi have on society from a financial perspective and if i can talk from a financial mm-hmm. perspective is is actually huge and i think mm-hmm. a lot of people can ignore the great that you've actually done so for example getting uh, a refugee or an asylum seeker accommodation education into employment uh, and and that of course takes burden off um, the Social Security system and actually adds more money back to the Australian through taxation you know through employment and things like that and it sort of leads me on to one of the great things that SSI have done which you know one of our colleagues is now working for you now Victoria being ignite and mm-hmm. um and the work that you've actually done there in helping, um, people with disability, uh, First Nations people up in Armidale, the, um, you know, in relation to, uh, just refugees in general whether they might have a business idea, but is it a good idea? And bringing people in, which I know Lucy uh, Lucy's spoken to us and we've certainly put our hand up to help out from a volunteer perspective in Victoria um, as an organisation, but helping helping people understand, is this actually a good idea as a business? And If it is, how do you actually get legs and get it running? So in other words, we know from our generation, Sonia, a lot of the successful businesses that you see today were formed from – migrants you know who actually came mm-hmm. here you know just many decades ago and actually formed you know businesses that have turned into great organizations today and have employed thousands of people successfully so do you want to just touch on ignite and what you do there from the different the different streams and how that actually adds back to society as well
2: yeah absolutely and just, um, just to touch on, um, the previous also question, just to add, you know, SSI has had, you know, over 20 years of experience in delivering services within the Australian community. Um, and we are now in the top 4% of the Australian not-for-profit. Um, but as I said earlier, um, operating in an environment with rising, you know, service delivery costs, competing priorities for government spending, higher expectations from the public about not-for-profits which is exactly what we were talking about and spend and return on investment is a is a constant debate that we're having internally so I do think and it will continue to continue to have I think it's not as I said earlier it's not a static conversation it, it's um we need to continuously um, have this debate and discussion on how do we actually improve our our systems processes um, in order to get the best outcomes for our clients and communities, but also ensuring that our organisation is financially, not just financially stable um, or sustainable, it's actually, as a whole, it's financially, um, socially and um, economically um, sustainable. So we look at it more broadly than just from a finance lens. Um, But moving on to the comment question around Ignite, um, again, uh, it was an initiative that SSI was self-funding for many, many years. Um, it was an idea that our CEO, um, who, you know, came, it came to her attention where we were finding that lots of refugees that were coming to Australia were really struggling to access employment and get employ, and get, um, meaningful, um, meaningful jobs. Um, and, and that was, you know, associated with m- multiple reasons. It was around, recognition of overseas qualifications or lack of recognition of overseas qualifications. Um, The timelines or, you know, trying to even go through that process was quite clunky, Um, not having access to... Social networks um, and being able to be put forward for roles, there was conscious and unconscious bias that exists within a number of or in within industries as well so due to all of these um, you know these reasons. We um, and we were seeing lots of, as you rightly stated, we were seeing people that were coming to the, to Australia that were running successful businesses in their home country, but again weren't we're, weren't aware of how to do it within the Australian context. There's le- there's regulations, there's rules, there's responsibilities, there's legislation, and you know just navigating that beast was a real challenge. Um And so we're um, um, the, I suppose the trailblazing and the foresight was um, from the CEO was like, well, let's see what we can do to establish um, a program that can support people and refugees in establishing their, uh, our business within the Australian context. And so we partnered with Ernesto Ceroli and draft and created Ignite, which is the business entrepreneurship model focusing on refugees. Um, and we, as I said, we self funded that, um, spent uh, a lot of money, uh, millions of dollars in um, developing that that model, tools, templates, communicates, policies, procedures, and um, were able to support over 250 businesses to be established. Um, we were then looked at, the Canadians loved the model, so the Canadians actually bought, bought the licensing. So our global manager went over... To Canada for about six months and supported the Canadians enrolling out Ignite, and then we um, and have continued support. Um, the government has continued to support that with providers in Canada, and our role is to provide um, almost like coaching and mentoring remotely uh, to to the program, which has been really greatly received and appreciated. We were successful in securing funding in in Victoria, so the Victorian government was the first government in Australia to actually fund um, Ignite, which was um, uh, you know I want to commend and applaud, um, and that was that was wonderful to see. And so our role was again in in Victoria is was to see communities and individuals who were interested in establishing a business, and we worked with them with their ideation. So they needed to have the passion, the interest, and the drive. And then we would work with them to go through the whole process of from setting up a business plan to looking at, um, competitive analysis, to look at location, to look at, um, how to get bank loans, how to, um, how to connect with other businesses, what kind of other supports that they could actually, um, receive. Because again, we're talking about a cohort that may not have a widespread, um, social connections or, professional um bodies that can provide those supports to them. So establishing an ecosystem of support where um Tony, obviously your firm has been a critical stakeholder and a real support to um up and coming business entrepreneurs. Uh, so that's the sort of the mechanism and the models that we actually applied in supporting people in establishing their businesses. And so we've um we've worked with our First Nations um Communities in Armidale and Coffs Harbour, um, and working with people with a disability as well, because again we were seeing that people with a disability were really getting struggling to, struggling to access employment and meaningful employment, but had capability and interest and capacity to work for themselves. So really working with them, holding their hand through the process, but they have to have the drive and the passion and the commitment because they need to do the work. But we will actually work alongside them, and also having the backing of an organisation, a human service organisation, um, has been really, I think, has been a positive and enabled the success of the program. Because, again, our IGNITE facilitators aren't the counsellor, aren't the therapeutic, um, you know, can't provide the therapeutic intervention, but they can refer them to other colleagues within the organisation or externally to others in the community sector. Uh, so it's been, it's a, it's a wonderful model and I'm, ex- as you can see, very passionate about it because I do see the benefits and the, and the successes of it. Um, and you know, we've seen that in outcomes.
1: Well, the outcomes and successes have been amazing. One of our, our podcast guests, probably about a year, year and a bit ago, Dwayne Fernandez, and Dwayne, uh, you know, is a double amputee. Uh, mm-hmm. he, uh, formed his business. He went through the Ignite. Uh, session, he now has I think fifty or sixty people working for him, mm-hmm. and uh, that, that's 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 an amazing success of, and as a result of that, and a lot of the people working for him, not all but a lot of them, uh, have disabilities themselves. Mm-hmm. So the amount that he has actually given back by his his passion and what he's he's done, but. That all started with Ignite. Um, you know, so just stories like Dwayne and many, many, many other stories, uh, has just been sensational. But as a result of that, though, it gives back to society. And I think that's one of the amazing things. As you said, it was self-funded, uh, mm-hmm. to start with, with what you guys have actually done, but it actually gives back to society. And I think that's a lot of things that, get lost in what Charlie was saying in the not-for-profit sector. Well, the word not-for-profit where people think, you know, oh, look at the profits you make, you know. And, but mm-hmm. what they also don't understand is not-for-profit doesn't mean that you can't make a profit. You have to be a sustainable business. You've still got a 1,000 people to pay mm-hmm, every yeah. week or fortnight or month or whatever your pay mm-hmm. schedule is. Um, so they still actually have to be paid. You still have to actually retain them. You still have to do everything for those people no differently than what we do as a full-profit uh company mm-hmm. as well. So it's not as if you get it easy In actual fact, if anything, you get it harder. Uh, mm. because there's a whole lot of other red tape on top of that uh, as a not-for-profit that you actually have to run by from the government as well. So I think that people lose that uh thought process in a lot of ways. But just in a, just in a closing question for you, Sonia. Um mm-hmm. The work that SSI have done have been magnificent and we're really looking forward to getting this out to people so they can actually hear of the actual social impact of everything that's been done. But from your perspective, what would you, once again, question without notice, that's how how we we roll. And as you know, we're good mates, you and (laughs) I, so it's how we talk with each other. But question without notice, what would you love to see personally as the next in respect to thing or strategy or movement that could actually be done here in australia to actually even welcome refugees even more so and actually help grow the the true multicultural success that australia has become actually even expand it and grow it even further than what it is today
2: mm-hmm. what's yeah, your thought
1: process not necessarily ssis but what would yeah. sonia love to see as well
2: yeah no great great question thank you Um i uh okay I think um, we do things well, and I think we need to we that doesn't mean we can't improve. So I think we need to continuously keep reflecting on the work that we're doing, why we're doing it, and how we can actually improve on that work. and that needs to be done considerately with um, all stakeholders, so again, community, sector, government, private. Um so that's definitely something that I think we need to be doing. I think we need we need what we do really well is look at what what are the gaps, what are the what are the critical factors that are uh, that we're struggling in with as a nation within Australia and then how do we actually come up with solutions to fix those problems. So for example, there is um, the aged care industry is crippled in Australia um the workforce we don't have the workforce we need i don't know how many numbers don't quite need but it's you know in the you know probably a couple of hundred thousand by 2030 and we don't have the people there so it's about looking creatively around um, our international obligations so under the international obligations on um, refugees potentially looking at what cohorts um, of displaced persons globally could potentially come into a stra- into the Australian context um, through different visa categories because, again, we've got limitations to the numbers of visas that we've got at the moment and being really creative and co-designing that creative responses to the, some of the problems that we're facing here. And so that can be um, with that particular scenario around aged care, looking at... Um, Complementary pathways. Um, I had the privilege of being in, um, uh, Bangkok a couple of months ago where we know that there's refugees from Myanmar that are based in Thailand that are refugees, um, who are nurses, but could come to Australia potentially through other complementary pathways, work in the aged care area and get upskilled whilst they're working. Um, they get, um, they go through their bridging courses to be upskilled in their nursing, um, Qualification and then go into the nursing sort of channels. So I do think that that's uh, a really uh, important strategy and something that we need to be considering. I think what we need to be doing better at is um, amplifying some of the stories. It's not about sugarcoating, and there's there's there is problems. But it is also about amplifying the successes, amplifying the stories, utilising different mechanisms and um, modes of media to amplify the success stories. Australia is built on migration. Um, and so we need to be um, celebrating those successes. And sometimes they're small wins and sometimes they're larger ones and, and demonstrating that impact um, across the community. And I think we need to get better at that. I think what we do well is we talk to each other and we talk to like-minded individuals, but I think we need to be better at talking to people that aren't in the space and um, aren't really familiar with the work that happens and are, are not uh, necessarily aware of the success of um, individual stories and the success of particular communities, and amplifying those is really important um and having the debate and but having you know having a respectful debate around the successes of my uh, migration and multiculturalism ideally as well as you know having uh you know leadership um within government that's um really focused on multiculturalism uh and sitting within you know executive government would be helpful as well uh, because I do think that that needs to come from from government and business uh business need to uh, let us know what what they need and what works for them and so that way we can all work together in a tripartite response to meet the make this society a thriving you know society and also for Australia to continue its positive reputation globally um because at one point in time it hasn't had a, a very positive global um reputation so it's about making sure that we are um building on that and and ensuring that we are demonstrating our successes as well um from on a global stage
1: Sonia, I do love the fact that I can ask you a question without notice and the passion actually shines out of you in respect to your response. So Mm -hmm. you, you, you already, you know, it's, it's something you didn't have to think that long and hard about as, you know, so you can actually see it is in your DNA. So, but just as a closing statement from me, I would actually like to personally thank you and acknowledge you, uh, for the friendship that you've actually, uh, our friendship that we've grown together. But, more to the fact that you are a person that for me is a safe person to speak to, that I can actually ask questions without sounding dumb because I need to understand or I need to learn, and you can actually uh, share with me your wisdom, your passion, your experience without judgment for me asking a question. And, and that to me is something that I actually treasure, that I know you're a person that I can say, Here's what we want to do. I don't quite understand this in your sector, or you know, am I saying this right? Is this offensive? And and you you actually through your own experience will actually educate me without judgment. And that is one of the the things that's really drawn uh, myself to you. That I know that I can actually do that and and actually not be judged for asking a question because I actually want to learn and I and, and I wish there were more of you out there in the cool. world I think it would be a far more peaceful and loving place if that was the case so thank you so much for everything you do Charlie and I would love to thank you uh, for being our guest today it's because I know how critical time is for you also Uh so really sensational and Tali was dying to meet you and now she actually has, virtually at least
3: anyway. Yeah, yeah,
2: so and I wanna I mean I wanna thank you. I think it's really important. I think it's not just a one way relationship or conversation, Tony. And I think with your team, your courageous courageousness and willingness to actually step outside comfort zones is really um remarkable and commendable and I think um, your willingness to, you know, have these open dialogue is really it's great and and it's mutual. So you know, it's an area for for myself personally, but also for our organisation to learn. What does you know, what does business want? What do other stakeholders want and need? And I think we need to be having this dialogue regularly because the, that's the only way we'll be able to learn and bridge those those gaps. Um, and, you know, understand each other's roles more effectively and how we can collectively work together to, um, make this, uh, wonderful society, um, or improve this wonderful society. I think we have got, as you've mentioned earlier, um, it's a great country to, we're very lucky, we're fortunate, the country that we live in, but it's also about making sure that every, and the most, um, vulnerable in our communities are feeling that they can contribute and part of this society as well. And, you know, as I said, I think being so courageous and stepping outside your comfort zone is really, really wonderful to see and and I want to thank you for that. Um, Also, I'll I'll do a plug, um, you know, our annual report is going to be launched um, next week um, so a lot of the information and data will hopefully be captured sincerely so people in your listeners um, that may want to hear a little bit more or read a little bit more, I do encourage them to, you know, to go to our website and um, and to download the report and that might give you a bit more insights into the work that we actually do as well.
1: Sonia, let us know when that's there. We'll actually put in the link and send it out and our monthly updates to clients as well okay. uh, with with this podcast. I think that will go well. Sonia, thank you so much for your time today.
2: Thank you, Tony and Talat. I really appreciate it.
3: Thanks, Sonia. I appreciate it. Cheers. See you soon.